Have a seat. Um, take your Bibles. Go to the. I'm gonna actually have you go two places, but go to Philippians, um, and then I'm gonna have you back in the book of uh, Acts in chapter 16 as well for the bulk of our time together. So if you want to kind of uh, you know kind of put a, a place marker or something in, in one of those spots, that would be good. Um, <clears throat> so last weekend, some of you got to watch a Facebook Live Bible study that we attempted. I learned some valuable lessons. For those of you that watched it, it seemed like I was talking more quickly than I normally do. I was trying to keep up with all the passages you were all throwing at me. I didn't know that I could go back through and scroll through the comments. I thought I had to talk about them before they disappeared into oblivion because I'm so technologically advanced myself. So I was like, I don't know this verse. So learn some valuable lessons there. Um, but, but what we did last weekend, for those of you that don't know, is uh, kind of launched this study for you. I wanted you to look at what, what the Bible said about joy. Because as we go through the book of Philippians, that really is um, the, the focal point of the entire book. What the Apostle Paul is going to do is he is going to remind us of the reasons we have to be joyful. And he's going to talk about things that, that you and I may not look as re, uh, at as reasons to be joyful. We may look at them a little differently, but, but he views them solidly as, hey man, this, this is where you can be joyful, in this. So... Uh, um, in trying to come up with a definition of joy, and that's, that's difficult, and so I'm going to save some of that for Sunday morning, but for tonight, what I want to do is kind of give you just a quick picture. Well, um, in Luke 15, there is a story, and we sang about it a little bit tonight. It's a story about a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep, and, and, and one of them goes missing. And so what that shepherd has to do is make the choice, what do I do now? Do I just write that one off, or do I go after it? And he makes a decision that he's going to leave his 99 behind and he's going to go pursue that one sheep. And he looks and he looks and he looks and he looks. And that tells you how valuable that sheep is, doesn't it? The fact that he would leave 99 to pursue one. And when he finds that one, it says that he throws it over his shoulder and it says, he says, rejoice! This one that was lost has now been found. That's joy. Joy is a story that comes after that in Luke chapter 15. When a young man tells his daddy, I'm leaving home. I want my inheritance now. See ya. And he blows out of the the family home and he blows his entire inheritance on what the old King James called riotous living. He got to the place where he had absolutely nothing and he had to make a decision on what to do. And so what he decided to do was demonstrate for us what real repentance looks like. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to see my dad, and I'm going to be willing to do anything that he asks of me. That's repentance. Repentance is no matter what daddy throws down as the gauntlet, I'm going to run through it because this is on me. But what he finds isn't a daddy who's going to make him run the gauntlet. What he finds is a daddy who's been looking out from the porch every day, longing for his son to come home. And when he sees that boy come over the around the corner or across the horizon. I'm not sure how it works, but what you see is daddy runs. He runs to him and he throws his arms around his neck and he says, I rejoice because my son who was lost has been found. He's home again. Let's party. That's rejoicing. And so when Paul says in Philippians, we're going to talk about joy, that's the joy he's talking about. We're not talking about happiness we're not talking about silly humor. We're talking about deep-seated joy. 
Um, before I read verses 1 and 2, I meant to say this at the beginning, but I'll say it now. So I want to publicly thank the people of Uniontown Bible Church, the staff, the volunteers who have pulled this off tonight. Um, the band, it's not like they were sitting at home with nothing to do. The volunteers who are working in the, the, the children's area right now, up through preschool, it's not like they were bored either. So they're sacrificing their time to come and to take care of our munchkins and to sing and lead us in singing tonight. And so I am incredibly grateful for them. We have amazing people at Uniontown. So the other thing I'll say is uh, we do have childcare up through preschool, but after that, they're in here with us. So if things are a little squirmier than normal, that's okay. We'll live, right? And kids, just so you know, your parents squirm too, because I preach for a long time. <laughs> Usually till night, like this. No, that's good. So, Philippians chapter 1, let me just read the first two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to understand the book of Philippians fully, to in, in order to understand why Paul's so... Um, joyful as he speaks, as he writes, we've got to understand how the, the Philippian church came to be. So let's turn back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, because that's where we'll find it. Maybe some of you are here, and you're like, okay, I walked into this place tonight because it's a church service on a Friday night. That is completely abnormal. I don't even know who Paul is. No worries. Let me explain it to you. Paul was one of the greatest persecutors of the early church. His name, before he came to know Jesus, was Saul. And Saul was continuing to arrest and vote for the death penalty for men and women who were following after Jesus Christ. But it just so happened that Jesus had other plans for Saul. And so Saul got on his horse and was riding on the road on his way to Damascus. And this great light shined and blinded Paul and knocked him off his horse. And Jesus spoke to him and said, hey, Saul, it's me. Remember, you, you said I'm not who I said I was. Now what do you think? Now, if some of us in this room get into deep theological discussions. Okay? There's a lot said about such terms, and I'll talk about this one, election. So basically the idea is, so how does God determine who's saved? Does God determine who's saved? There's an election that happens. There's, they are the elect. Now, I don't care where you fall on that, that, that line of thinking when it comes to election or non-election. I will tell you this. If you're on your horse and knocked off it by Jesus himself, you're elect. Paul obviously was elected. Paul then goes from being one of the greatest tormentors of the early church to being its earliest pastor. He becomes a man who church plants around the world. He is a man who is completely committed to Jesus Christ and to making much of Jesus Christ. He goes on missionary journeys. He's already done one missionary journey, one full loop, and he's returned back somewhat towards where he would have called home. And, and churches had been started on that journey, and the gospel's being preached on that journey, and he begins a second missionary journey. And he gets to the edge of Asia, and if he was to go south, he would end up in Asia. And he's kind of north of Asia, and he's looking down, and he's like, I think that's where we're going to go. And, and Acts chapter 16 tells us that the God, God and the Holy Spirit said, nope, you can't go to Asia. You can't go south. So what's a guy to do? Well, then you look north. North is Bithynia. So he says, maybe we're going to go to Bithynia. And it says the Spirit of Jesus said, nope, you're not going to Bithynia. So, so what does Paul do? Paul continues heading west, gets to a place called Troas, 
And it says that he's asleep, and he has this vision in his sleep of a man from a land called Macedonia. It's pretty much the gateway to Europe. And a man from Macedonia, in, in, in Paul's vision, in Paul's dream, a man from Macedonia says this, come to Macedonia and help us. Paul wakes up and he speaks to his traveling companions, who at this time are Silas and Luke, and they decide, that, let's go to Macedonia. So they get on the boat and they head over to Macedonia. The first city they come to in Macedonia is called Philippi. Philippi is the place where this church, the Philippian church, is found. They come to to Philippi. Philippi was part of the Roman Empire, one of the most prominent empires in history. And and they're actually called a leading city. Now, they weren't leading because they were the first city of Macedonia. They weren't leading because they were the capital of Macedonia. It just seemed like the people took such great pride in themselves that they referred to themselves as, we're a leading city of Macedonia, kind of like y'all with your Maryland flag. There's no other state that rejoices in a flag like Maryland. It's the leading flag. And so somewhat similar to that, you've got the people of Philippi, like, we are a leading city. Uh, It was named after King Philip II. History buffs, anybody know who Philip II is? Maybe one or two of you. All right. You probably don't recognize him. Don't feel bad. His son is named Alexander the Great. Ever heard of that one? Wives, if your husband hasn't heard of that one, you can elbow him now. It's fine. It's cool. Sorry. So, so Alexander the Great is his, his son. Philippi became very popular. If any of you have read Shakespeare, you might have heard of the Battle of Philippi. The Battle of Philippi was actually a historical event that occurred in Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. Uh, you remember that Brutus, which I got made fun of over Christmas for talking about him as Brute, Cassius, another man, wiped out Julius Caesar. They murdered him. And so when they ran away, Octavian and Mark Antony went after him. They had this huge battle at Philippi in 42 BC. So what I want you to understand is this. As we're reading the book of Philippians, it's historical, folks. It's a real place. I think sometimes in our head we get a picture of this mystical and magical thing. It's a real place. And this real place called Philippi was known for trying to be a mini-Rome. When people would travel through Philippi, they would say, this looks a lot like Rome, and, and they would take great pride in it because that's the way they, they, they fashioned it. They did great architecture. They did wonderful roads. They did a number of things to try to make it look like the capital city of Rome. It was filled with students, with educators, with great commerce and business. Religion was prominent, but there was very little knowledge of the Bible. And how do we know that? Well, if you're in Acts chapter 16... And you look at, um, let's see, let's go verse 13. Paul and Luke and Silas say this, On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who were, women who were gathered there. Now let, me, let me tell you this. Usually Paul's MO was to go to a city. He would enter the synagogue. He would reason with the Hebrews that were there. And when he was shut out of the synagogue, then he would go and preach to the Gentiles. Paul has just come into Philippi, and there is no synagogue to be found. Why is there no synagogue? Well, it would take 10 Hebrew men to the, uh, allow them to start a synagogue. It's called a minion, not a little yellow dude. Okay, But it's a minion. The idea is taken from the Hebrew word mene, which means to number or to count. 
Um, the, the Hebrew tradition or traditional Judaism has taken the concept of a minimum of 10 men to begin a synagogue from two different places. In Psalm 82, uh, it says God stands in the congregation of God. That word congregation is ida. It's also used in Numbers chapter 14, and you'll be more familiar with that story, I think. The 12 spies went in, they came back, 10 were bad, 2 were good. Everybody remember that strong? Okay, there were 10 bad, two good spies, and 10 were like, nope, we're not going into the promised land. There's some big old giants in there, and they're going to whoop us. And the two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were like, yeah, they're big, but our God's bigger. Let's go. And the 10 were like, uh-uh, we're not going, we're not going. And God's response to them in Numbers 14, 27 was this, how long will this evil congregation, the 10 spies, provoke the nation to complain against me? And so traditional Judaism has taken those two verses and put them together and said, God arrives in the congregation, and the congregation was the ten spies, so we must have ten in order to start a synagogue. So there's a little history of, 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 of Judaism and theology there for you. So without a synagogue, Paul makes his way outside the city, goes to the, to the river. So, so when he gets to the river, it says he sits down to the women who are gathered at the river having a prayer meeting. And we get introduced to one of them. This is a a lady named Lydia. She is a CEO. Lydia, verse 14, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying, and after she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here's this lady named Lydia. She's from Thyatira, a large Asian city. She's living in Philippi. She's a seller of purple. She's a, (laughs) I don't even know if this is a real word, but it's in my notes, so I'm going to say it. She's a fashionista. Is that a real word? All right, good. That makes me feel better. I don't know if it makes me feel better. It's a real word. Um, today, I guess in today's culture, it would be, look like this. She, she's from London, but she has a house in New York, and that's New York City, and that's where she, she runs her business. So that's what's happening with Lydia here. She's, she's probably better off financially than most people. She's a woman who had her own business, and as we see a little bit later, she's got a home that she can fit a number of people in. Calls her a God-fearer, a God-worshiper. She's a woman who who sympathized with the Jewish faith and prays to the, the God of the Israelites. She's rejecting the polytheistic gods of the day in Philippi. She's rejecting the idea of emperor worship in the day. And here, she, she goes every week to this, this meeting of prayer, and what she hears is the law being read. She, she hears the same law you and I would hear read, the law, the, the law that God gave to his people. And everybody who's familiar with hearing the law read, what you, what you become aware of is this, you have broken God's law. There's not a single one of us, I mean, honestly, just, just the Ten Commandments, forget the rest of the law, the 600-something other commands that are in there in God's law. Let's just go with the Ten Commandments. When you hear the Ten Commandments, not one of us is like, yeah, nailed that one. And there's, there's always something in there that's like, oh... I have failed. I failed again. I failed again. So as Lydia got to hear the law of God, certainly that was the same um, feeling that would have come over her. She was no exception. But now Paul shows up and it says he sits with them. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That's intimacy. That's relationship. He, he sits on the side of the river with them and he begins to explain to them the pieces that they're missing of the gospel. He says, listen, I know you're listening to the law. You can't perfectly keep the law. Somebody else needs to do it for you. And that's the good news that I bring to you. The good news is that God is so incredibly gracious and merciful 
that he has provided a substitute, and his name is Jesus. The gospel is that story that God demonstrated how much he loved you by sending Jesus while you were sinning. And Jesus lived perfectly, and you couldn't. He died willingly, and you should have. And he rose from the dead, giving you life. And we don't know exactly what Paul said, but that's the gospel he's been preaching everywhere he goes. So he's, as he lays that out for Lydia, she gets it. She, she understands it. It says the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. The Lord opened her heart. I can't open any of your hearts. I can't do it. If your salvation is dependent on me, my performance, the messages that I bring, how much manipulation I use and emotionalism, man, we're all in trouble. I can't open your heart. Only God can. Only God can. Well, well, God hasn't opened my heart yet. Hey, there's good news. He's cracking it open. You're in church on a Friday night. Don't overlook that. The Lord opens her heart. She gets baptized. And then she says to Paul, listen, why don't you come stay with us? Why don't you live with us while you're in Philippi? Why don't you and your, your, your cohort of people, why don't you come hang with us? And, and let's, let's, you can sleep here, you can eat here, just make this the base of your operations. Now, now think about this for a minute. When Lydia woke up in the morning, she was, she was simply a, a God-fearer. She was sitting at the river, listening to a law being read that she knew she could never keep. And when she went to bed that night, she was a child of God. She was adopted into God's family through what Jesus Christ had done for her. When she went to bed that night, she wasn't a better person. She was a different person. Man, maybe you walked in here this night. Our prayer is that when you go home tonight, you won't be a better person but you'll be a new creation. See, the, the, the message of Paul that started that church in Philippi was, you're a sinner, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The good news is this, God loved us, and while we were sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And that same Jesus, who went to the tomb, victoriously rose from the dead three days later. And he lives, and he's forever making intercession for you. So that's the beginning of the church of Philippi. It's this lady named Lydia. But, but not long after that, as the story continues, um, it says, once when we were on our way to prayer, so they're heading back to the prayer meeting together as, as they're gathering people. It says, the slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. So, so here's this demon-possessed girl who's following after Paul, Silas, and Luke. And the whole time they're walking around, it says that she is proclaiming this. This is verse 17. These men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, and they are the servants of the Most High God. Now, a couple of feelings about that. Um, it's cool if somebody, like one of you, is to be like, hey, you know what? This guy over here, he's preaching the good news of the gospel and he's serving God. I'd be like, yeah, amen. But when a demon-possessed girl does it, you get the sense she's probably mocking them. Now, that was a problem because this girl was telling the, the fortunes of so many people she could lay out the future for all these people and the men who were handling her were making big-time cash on her performance. And so she continues to follow Paul and Silas and Luke around, and I love the middle. Oh, that's verse 18. 
She did this for many days, and Paul was greatly annoyed. There's little kids in here. Not gonna be careful, but moms and dads, I think you understand the feeling. Mom, hey mom, hey mom, 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 can mom, mom, hey mom, mom, hey mom, hey mom, go! And you might want to do what Paul did, turn around and cast the demon out of the kid. I'm not sure, but but Paul's like, <laughs> Paul's just like, go, get out. I mean, there's no understand. It's really interesting. There's no gospel preaching here. There's no hey, let's let's reason through this. There is simply demon, get out of that girl. And the demon hears Paul and leaves. It's interesting that we see God deliver her and she finds the very salvation that she had been mocking. But it creates a small problem because her owners, her handlers, the men who were making money when she was doing the the fortune telling now know that their cash cow is gone. And they are livid. They are ripping mad. And so they, they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace Look at, look at verse 19. Her owners realized their hope of profit was gone. So they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and they're promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them. The chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had severely flogged them, they threw him in jail. And the flogging, it's not patty cake. They, they, they tore him up. And when they were done tearing him up, they sent him to jail. And it's interesting, verse 23, the middle there, they threw them in jail and they ordered the jailer to guard them carefully. Please note what it says there. The jailer, just keep an eye on them. Guard them carefully. That's what it says. Verse 24, look at his response. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison and he secured their feet in the stocks. Now, now let me, let, me, let me back up a little bit. Let me tell you about the jailer. This Philippian jailer, as I picture him, as I imagine him to be, and again, this is, this is the Bible here, and this is Frank over here We're using his sanctified imagination, okay? As I picture the jailer, what I see is this, this hard-nosed, oil rig kind of guy. He's big, he's brutal, he's mean, he's gruff, he's the kind of guy that puts in the long day's work. He wants to go home, he wants to, he wants to grab a beer, and he wants everybody to leave him alone. That's this guy. And so when they say, keep an eye on him, he says, absolutely. And instead of just keeping an eye on him, he puts them in stocks. Now, unfortunately for us Americans, we think about colonial times. We think about the wood thing that's got the holes in it, and they put their hands in their neck, and they clunk. That's what we think of when we hear stocks. That ain't stocks. These stocks were instruments of torture. They were bound up in such a way and their bodies were so contorted that the the cramping would set in and it would be excruciating pain and they would be left in the inner chamber of that prison, a place where there was no natural light for hours on end in excruciating pain. So think about this, Paul and Silas in prison for probably about 12 hours. They're sitting on the floor, very uncomfortable, locked up in these stocks, bound up in these stocks. 
the open wounds from the flogging that they had received earlier now were surrounded by dried blood that when stretched would cause them to grimace in pain. They're in utter darkness and evidently they can't sleep because it says it's about midnight. So Paul and Silas, with all of those things being true about them, at some point acknowledge each other and say, Dude, the acoustics in here are awesome. <laughs> Start singing. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I think that last little phrase is funny. I don't think the prisoners were like, oh, wonderful, we get a concert at midnight. I think this is the kind of thing that Paul and Silas were driving them nuts. I mean, wouldn't Paul be one of the most annoying people in the world? At that? I mean, you're trying to break this guy's spirit, and he's like, who did, who did, who did, who did, who did swallow Jojo Jonah? I mean, that's like a, he's going to drive you absolutely bananas, but they're going, and they're going to keep going. And then in verse, we're told in verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake. The foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everybody's chains came loose. And when the jailer awoke, he saw the doors of the prison standing open, and he drew his sword, and he was ready to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. Okay, hold on. Well, what's happening here? You have to understand, a prison guard who lost a prisoner, in particular, prisoners who he was instructed to keep a very close eye on, would be exchanged for that prisoner who had escaped. And so they, they, they would be facing life in prison, or worse, death. And, and I'm guessing it, it would have been pretty excruciating for him because he looked at suicide as a more viable option for him than facing the consequences of allowing Paul and Silas to escape. But Paul calls out in a loud voice, verse 28, he says, no, 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 don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for lights to be brought in, and he fell down trembling in front of them. As he brought them out of the prison, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What led that man to that level of brokenness? We don't know. I can tell you this. The Lord was busy opening his heart. And so, so he takes them out. They, they, they tell him very clearly, what do you need to do to be saved? Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Take Jesus at his word. And, 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 and he does. He takes Paul and Silas out of the jail. It says he washes them up, cleans their wounds, gives them some food. He, he, him and his, his whole family get baptized. He brings them back to prison. And the next day, long story short for time's sake, the next day uh, they, they say, why don't you release them quietly? And Paul says, I don't think so. I'm a Roman citizen. You beat me like I wasn't one. I want the, the bigwigs to come down and release me from prison. And so he creates a, a bit of a, a stink. As they're released, verse 40. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters, and they departed. So now by this time, the church in Philippi, the Philippian church, has grown to the place where there's brothers and sisters there. And it started with a CEO named Lydia, demon-possessed girl, 
and a jailer. And Paul writes the book of Philippians to those people, to people who are very different than he is, right? And and this book is being written 10 to 15 years later. And, And he writes to them with this deep sense of love in his heart. Look, look back at Philippians chapter 1, and I think you can hear in his voice how he feels about these people. Philippians chapter 1, I'm going I'm to start in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus, Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. But I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And indeed, it's right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you're all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Can't you see it in his heart, in his voice? You, you see his heart coming out in his words. 10 to 15 years after you've been there, think about that for a moment. What, what's in his mind? What's he thinking? Is he thinking, what, what about that demon girl? <laughs> what's she doing now? Is the, is the jailer, is the jailer one of those overseers or deacons that he talks about at the beginning of chapter one? Has he grown to that place? There's this deep-seated affection. And so as we read the book of Philippians together, as we study the book of Philippians together, you're going you're to find this affection just ooze out of him. There's going to be overwhelming joy that comes out of Paul, even as he corrects a couple of the members in the church, even as he warns them about others. You'll hear the affection as he tries to protect his children in Jesus. As he remembers those sweet people, you're going to hear him say, yeah, things are not easy and things are not always happy. But the overwhelming reality is it's more than happy. It's about joy. It's about rejoicing. It's rejoicing in the middle of your circumstances no matter how difficult they may be. It's about rejoicing in each other no matter how difficult you may be. It's about rejoicing in Jesus because how good God is. It's about knowing my standing before God and the status that he has given me. See, I think we overlook the status that Paul mentions about the church of Philippi. And that status that he assigns to them, that God has assigned to them, is the same status that is assigned to each and every one of you who's in this room, who is in Jesus Christ tonight. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. To all the saints. I don't care about football tonight. I will on Sunday. But we're not talking about the New Orleans saints. To all the saints. That's you. And I know for some, for some of us who, who have a Catholic, we're like, oh, Catholic background's like, wait a minute, I'm not a saint. No, no, you're a saint. You're a holy one. And it's not because of anything you did. It's because of what Jesus did. 
And, and I know, I know, I know, we don't feel very saintly. Depending on how your Friday went, you may not feel like you're a saint. But that's the beauty of the book of Philippians. Paul says, I know you're a saint. And I, I, know, I know the objections that come up. I know, no, but God's got you. God's doing this. God's going to complete this work in you. God's going to give you righteousness that, that you don't deserve and you don't have. See, as the book is, is filled with joy and rejoicing, the greatest sense of joy that Paul gets is knowing what God is going to do for the Philippians. And what God is going to do for the Philippians, He's going to do for you. And it begins with something as simple as this. He who started this good work in you is going to keep on carrying it on until you are complete on the day of Jesus Christ. See, you're a saint. You may not feel like it, but it ain't about feelings because that's happy. It's about joy. And knowing that your standing is forever settled in heaven. Look forward to Sunday. Pray, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what Christ has accomplished for me. God, I thank you for the, the, the stories in Scripture that, that we can relate to. I thank you that the Apostle Paul was so thrilled about a little church like the Philippian church with all its warts and wrinkles and all its imperfect people because that's us. <laughs> so God, I pray that Uniontown Bible Church and the people who attend it and call it home would know what you think about them would know that you are never going to drop them. Would know that you are loved, that they are loved greater than any of us could ever imagine. And that you are always in control. So Father, I pray you would change us. For it's in Jesus' good and wonderful name I pray. Amen.